Welcome to another Noble Hearts Forum produced by Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and I'm pleased and honored to be your host and moderator for today's forum. Now, you're listening to this show either as a podcast or what we call a radio loop. Either way, you probably access the show by visiting Center Left Talk Radio, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. That's the homepage for Center Left Radio. And when you go there, there's two links on the homepage. The first is a link to all of our podcasts. The second, as it says, is a link to our radio loop, which is really nothing more than a live stream of this show running in a loop, which you pick up at whatever point you happen to hit that link. And uh, join us as you would join and listen to any other radio show that you might pick up. We have a number of listeners who enjoy listening that way, and, uh, and we preserve that particular option for you. Uh, or you can be finding us wherever you find podcasts. In that case, look for Center Left Radio. We try to do about one Noble Hearts Forum a month in addition to our usual political commentary shows, and we've done about 750 of those over the last five-plus years. Our Noble Hearts Forum panelists are, for the most part, members of the Regis High School class of several decades back. Uh, the words Noble Hearts come straight from our school song, composed more than 100 years ago. We weren't, hopefully. Regis was and is in New York City, and in our day was ranked the top high school in the nation. Now it's been demoted to the top Catholic high school in the nation, Sic Transit Gloria Mundi. Our topic today is one we've dealt with before, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In fact, I believe this is our third forum on that topic. The first took place before Russia attacked uh, at a time when most people imagined that they wouldn't. And the discussion was largely about America's inappropriate intervention in what was deemed a regional matter, complete with defensibly accurate examples of other inappropriate American interventions in the past. Only one of our panelists at that time chose to speculate about what might happen if Russia actually did attack. And clearly his words were prophetic. We're now in the third month of the Russian invasion. Any thoughts of a quick change of governments a long past, and Russia seems to lack any consistent strategic plan other than to grind the Ukrainians into surrendering some additional eastern territory to Mother Russia. Uh, if the reporting is even moderately accurate, the primary Russian tactic is to brutalize the civilian population into submission. This is the same population that Mr. Putin assured the world would welcome their fellow Russians with opened arms. It's a bloody mess. And no one seems to know how to end it or where it might end of its own accord. And that's what we're talking about today. What might lead to a cessation of hostilities? The easy answer, of course, is that Russia stops attacking and killing. But how and who makes that happen? Will NATO play a role in brokering or enforcing a ceasefire? What would a sustained peace look like? How might it be sustained? To revisit our first forum on this topic, what should America be doing now and in the future besides supplying arms to Ukraine and declassifying reams of intelligence that seem to telegraph every major Russian misstep? There's a lot to discuss. And we'll be doing it with three very distinguished panelists, two of whom should be familiar to regular listeners. Dr. Charles Webel is currently professor and guarantor of the School of International Affairs at the State University of New York in Prague. That Prague, yes. A five-time Fulbright scholar. He has published 13 books, many of which deal with issues of war and peace. He is now working on volume two of his three-volume trilogy, modestly entitled The Fate of This World and the Future future of humanity, as well as a novel entitled Academia, with three Ks. Charles, Charles is also the guy who posed the what-if-they-actual-attack scenario uh, during our first forum on this topic. John Cugini is our go-to link to the high-tech world. After earning his undergrad degree in philosophy, he spent eight years as a programmer instructor for the U.S. Army, picking up a master's degree in computer science along the way, and then spent nearly 30 years 
working for the National Bureau of Standards, shepherding all manner of programs and projects, everything from graphics and visualization to voting systems. We were going to be joined by another familiar panelist, Dr. Bill Mulligan, but unfortunately Bill has a scheduling conflict this morning. And we're honored to have a guest panelist today as well. Professor Stephen Eric Bronner is a noted political theorist and distinguished professor of political science, comparative literature, and German studies. He is the co-director of the International Council for Diplomacy and Dialogue, the Board of Governors Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Political Science, and Affiliate Distinguished Fellow at the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights, all of the above at or through Rutgers University. He is also, it would appear, the prolificist of our writers and has published more than 25 books and 200 journal articles, and his work has been translated in more than a dozen languages. Gentlemen, welcome to our Noble Hearts Forum. Thank you. Okay, now where to start? Charles. Ah, Charles. And this is totally unfair, but we'll deal with that when I see you in a few weeks. It's three years from now. Just a scenario. Professor Webel is publishing his much-anticipated paper on the tacit ceasefire between the Russians and the Ukrainians that has largely held up for nearly six months now. How, how Professor, did that ceasefire come about, if it came about? And how is it being maintained? Could non-violent resistance have played a role or is playing a role? How did it happen if it did? Well, of course, there's no ceasefire. And well, it's, moment, three, it's three years uh, from now, Charles. It's three years from now. It did not happen, ah. and it's not foreseen unless one of several things happens, ranging from the least desirable but most probable to the most desirable but least probable from my point of view. I should note that I've been to Russia and Ukraine many times, but not for 15 years. And I introduced Professor Brunner to Russian culture exactly 30 years ago ah, on a trip right. we undertook to Moscow and St. Petersburg for a conference, and he's been addicted, apparently, to things Russian ever since. <laughs> I have not been rushing in as quickly as he has, but I've been studying it from abroad, and I do speak and read Russian, uh, which may pay a part in our conversation later. So from the most desirable but least probable, from my point of view, is a Ukrainian victory of some kind, or a stalemate of a kind that prompts Putin to take his gains to date or in the near future and run with them to preserve them. That is, from my point of view, undesirable because it would leave roughly one quarter of Ukraine in Russian hands indefinitely, perhaps forever, at the cost of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lives, most of them Ukrainian. Yeah. But given realpolitik, the politics of power, of hard power on the ground now, I see that at the moment as the most probable. Hmm. A ceasefire would come about from this perspective, if and only if Putin thinks he's gotten as much as he can on the ground and would not forfeit anything that he has already taken in terms of a truce or a ceasefire. That, I think, is the most likely but most undesirable from a Ukrainian, Western, and NATO point of view. Moving sideways on the scale to the most desirable but least likely is a Ukrainian victory and or a Russian withdrawal, leaving everything as it was, as the status quo ante before the invasion. In other words, 
Russia would keep Crimea and would have some semi-autonomous zones in the Donbass, Luhansk, and Donetsk, Oblasti regions. That was the status quo ante before. But I do not see that as likely for any number of reasons, mostly internal to Russian politics and Putin's status within the Russian hierarchy. In between those and exceeding those are two other scenarios. One is the catastrophist scenario, and one is the pacifist scenario. The catastrophist scenario is this escalates to the point where neighboring countries, including or not excluding Poland and the Baltic states, and possibly even the Czech Republic, are drawn into the conflict. I say possibly even the Czech Republic because this morning on Hot Talk from the BBC, the new Czech Minister of Foreign Affairs was interviewed. And he made it clear that the Czech Republic has already commenced sending so-called offensive weapons, namely long-distance um, howitzers and Soviet-era tanks and other undescribed weaponry to Russia and would continue to do so virtually irrespective of Russia's reaction. Hmm. That, of course, implicates the Czech Republic yeah. directly in this conflict. And since I presently live there, I can tell you <laughs> Czechs on the one hand have always hated the Russians for good historical reasons, <laughs> but, but this action also endangers the status of the Czech Republic for any number of reasons. Of course. Of course. This could lead to a mutual tit-for-tat escalation between at least components of NATO and Russia extending beyond Ukraine's borders and possibly including the use of weapons of mass destruction, which is, I'm sure everyone has heard, Putin has not um, outlawed or denied that he would contemplate using. There's silence about that on NATO's part, but I can assure you that NATO has all kinds of games and scenarios for responding to a use of weapons of mass destruction by Russia, either in kind or in some other way. Which leads me to the last scenario, which is the most desirable, but the least likely. And that is that Ukraine has already practiced a whole series of active resistance, nonviolent activities, ranging from uh, cyber warfare to uh, turning the road signs, entering Ukraine in the opposite direction <laughs> to all kinds of activities by partisans in Ukraine that do not involve uh, heavy weaponry. Uh, I can elaborate on that further, but no one knows if that prolonged campaign of nonviolent active resistance combined with the use of heavy weaponry today will bring about what the Ukrainians want which is the withdrawal of our Russian forces with as uh, few casualties as possible in the nearest possible period of time back to the status quo ante of uh, Crimea being Russian and us continuing to dispute over the Luhansk and Donetsk uh, regions. So I've laid out a number of different possibilities. I think the first is the most likely even if it is not by any means the most desirable. But I think the first is also the one most likely to persuade Putin, at least as a tactical maneuver, to engage in serious discussions about ceasefires. Hmm. Uh, Stephen Bronner, uh, if I may jump in on this one here. Uh, is this, is the... Is the first scenario, and again, just to make sure I'm, I've got my scenarios straight, there are a number of them there, Charles. That's the one where Russia takes what it has and maybe a little more in the east. I think he says as much as 25% of Ukrainian territory and basically uh, declares a tactical victory and then declares goes victory on May 9th and on uh, May negotiates 9th. seriously after that date. Stephen, is that what America would want? If, if, if that were to happen, would America be satisfied with that? Well, I, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, I'd actually like to build on what Charles said, because I think that was an excellent uh, delineation of possibilities. What usually isn't taken into account uh, with those possibilities, 
In fact, the, the possibilities themselves are, um, are not generally discussed in, in public. I was in Doha uh, recently, and there were a number of undersecretaries from different nations, though not from Czechoslovakia. And basically, the entire discussion was uh, about getting military aid. That was it. Mm -hmm. And pleading for military aid. Now, in terms of what Charles laid out, I think that uh, this is, ex I have no problem with that at all. In fact, I'm in, uh, in uh, full, almost full agreement with it. Uh, the issue is, though, depending upon the scenario, there are going to be different responses. Uh, uh, one shoe, uh, one size won't fit all. Yeah. And um, this is what I've been involved with. Uh, let me just say, uh, 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 my organization, the International Council for Diplomacy and Dialogue, is uh, sort of the representative for one of the very few uh, coalitions of civil society organizations called the National Platform for Reconciliation and Unity. Mm. And uh, what uh, I've been doing, and what we've been doing, is trying to advise not so much on uh, right now, but what do we do afterwards, you know? Or how do we think about afterwards? And it seems to me this is, this is where we can actually be somewhat effective. I drafted a statement for... Uh, the organization, which is, I'm pleased to say, uh, gone up the uh, food chain in a number of different uh, uh, nations and organizations. And basically, it's come down uh, to the following. Uh, again, using Charles's framework, yeah. which I think is yeah. completely right. If Russia's poised for victory, the question, uh, in my opinion... Uh, and I'd also like to raise this as a moral possibility. If Russia is, uh, is poised for victory, I think the uh, critical thing is to begin talking about a provisional government in exile uh, in order to coordinate future resistance and provide an alternative uh, to any puppet regime that's set up. Now, uh, Charles, in uh, his usual... Man, it was very tactful. And uh, I think, like he does, probably, this is one very, very serious possibility that Russia wins, whatever that means. The question is, is that likelihood so great today that Ukraine should surrender? Oh. A, a horrifying thought. Yeah, on, uh, one on, that uh, I haven't heard mentioned before. Yeah. Uh, yes, because it's, uh, shall we say, it's not exactly the most popular uh, position. Let me, though, give you an example uh, that uh, I think strikes to the heart of any progressive. In the Spanish Civil War, as you know, the, the, uh, the Spanish Civil War uh, had a war within a war. Uh, namely between communists and anarchists, as well as between communists and anarchists and liberals on one side and Franco's fascists on the other. Now, the, the treaty was signed, or the treaty was signed, basically victory was proclaimed by Franco fully in 1939. In 1937, there was... Uh, for all practical purposes, a civil war between communists and non-communists on the uh, progressive side. After that civil war, it seemed fairly obvious that the loyalists would lose. How legitimate was it to keep sending men and women in there who were going to get killed and without real purpose, because it was clearly lost? The issue for the moment is, is that the same situation in Ukraine? Mm. Yeah. I would, uh, uh, let me... John Cugini, yeah. Yeah, pick up a, a few things uh, 
from from Charles and Stephen. And I, I like Charles Charles's scenarios, although I'm not sure I agree with his probabilities. Um, the getting to the the possibility of a Ukrainian victory, it'd be a fool to predict that or predict any particular outcome. But there are precedents. If a country really doesn't want to be taken over and is willing to have a lot of its people killed, I mean, the Russians withdrew from Afghanistan. You know, they're in their 10 years and pretty brutal. And the Afghans were willing to keep fighting and dying until the Russians shrugged and said, it's not worth it. The Af- we withdrew from Afghanistan because we decided it wasn't worth it. And going back a longer way, the American Revolution faced, you know, the British Empire, which was quite powerful at the time, a lot of troops, a lot of money. Uh, but, you know, they're on our territory. They decided it wasn't worth it. The bloody war. So wars of resistance can be won. Yeah. Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine apparently has seems to have, I think to many people's advice, seems to have the fighting spirit. I think they're the ones that sort of get to make the call. If, if they decide it's not worth it, of course. they want to give up. Oh, okay. I mean, it's their it's it's their country, it's their lives, it's their political future. Um, I think our role, you know, clearly is to is to help them as much as we can, which I, I think we're we're doing a reasonably good job of. The the after action question is one I'd like to explore a little further. And this is something Zelensky has raised. Let's say there's some kind of okay. In in the best case, maybe the Russians withdraw completely, but maybe that partial withdrawals. Charles says they maintain control of. 10, 15, 20%, who knows much, how, how much in Ukraine? And they say, okay, we're willing to stop fighting. Zelensky's point of view is, what's our security guarantee? You know, we, we've had, in 1994, Russian agreed not to invade us. Okay, well, that was 30 years ago, so I guess that, that agreement wore out. I think in 2014, there was an agreement. From Zelensky's point of view, anytime, you know, Putin has a bad day, and he feels like firing up the war machine again. He could, he could just start again. He could go home and regroup, and two or three years later, he could invade. And I think that's what bothers him. And I know he would like to get security guarantees from us, and from because who wouldn't? And that's always been the, the NATO issue, is are we going to be willing to provide some kind of security guarantee? And I think that might be where a lot of the negotiation, and this, this even came up to you know bring in a little more weird historical analogies, even with a ceasefire in Vietnam, you know, uh, the South Vietnamese were quite worried. They said, well, you know, you're going you're gonna to provide us with air cover, right? We're going to come to this agreement in, I think it was 1973, and, you know, the North is going to stay where they are, and, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no problem, you know, we'll, we'll support you, until we didn't, you know, and then, and then that, that was it. So a country in a defensive position like Ukraine, and they're not just thinking about today and tomorrow, but they're thinking about, okay, when the fighting does end, you know, I don't think, Steve, uh, if I can say so, I think uh, security wor- uh, is the crucial issue for them in geopolitical terms. I don't think that's the crucial issue for, t- uh, for the nation's people. Uh, it seems to me the first question is, if Russia is poised for victory, how do you reconstruct the Ukraine? Who's going to, who's going to uh, intervene in that regard? Let me just, victory, hang on for one second. Well, yeah. just victory? Do you mean total victory over the whole? Ukraine? No, even with two, even with two thirds. Oh. Okay. There's no uh, or uh, one thirds. Uh, the second thing is uh, clearly, if that's the case, and Russia wins, uh, it will ask for the demilitarization and neutrality of. Uh, of the Ukraine, it's, uh, you don't get one without the other. Mm. We, are we willing to? Uh, well, would the West be willing to take the risk of um, airlifting human uh, humanitarian aid? It's uh, it may wind up the only alternative. And then there's a the question, the crucial question, which called, uh, which uh, Charles mentioned, uh, regarding the wave of immigrants that's going to happen, which is now going to spill, I think, even more into the millions. Mm. Uh, each country that as uh, diplomats that I've met has been trying to basically avoid that, uh, that question. Uh, if we go to chemical or nuclear weapons, as is becoming clear now, it'll probably be uh, 
discussed in begin in the beginning. I think that all sides will have to uh, be pushed to uh, preemptively oppose uh, that uh, that possibility. The second thing is, what if you, Ukraine will prevail? Uh, then it will be, I think, up to the United States and the EU to set up some kind of Marshall Plan. And the Marshall Plan was, of course, if well, was of course was effective precisely because it gave control over the plan to uh, European states. Um, it wasn't just sending in uh, the guys. Part of the reasons uh, we lost in uh, we lost that both the Russians and the United States lost in Afghanistan, I think it was twofold. I don't think it, uh, I think it was uh, that emphasis was placed only on the cities, and um, that's always been the case in, in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, the Mujahideen, um, the, ta uh, the Taliban, always controlled the countryside, which was the lifeblood. That was true in Vietnam as well, and uh, this has been a Western prejudice in warfare going back a long way. I think also if the Ukraine prevails, anyway, uh, we'll see closer, uh, I think we should emphasize the need for closer ties between the government and civil society, which at the moment uh, don't exist. Uh, there's um, one of our people uh, in the NPRU uh, is a fairly close advisor to Zelensky. And uh, he said there's a major problem here in terms of accountability and who's making uh, what decisions. They're becoming more and more centralized. So I think it's, po but I think it's possible to press that from the outside. A crucial issue, I think, that is not usually discussed is that a reconciliation commission is going to be necessary in some sort. But we're going to have to condemn calls for uh, popular tribunals because it was bad in France and it, after the Second World War, and it was. Uh, uh, estimates go from 10,000 to 50,000 people were killed uh, who were considered collaborators. It's going to be much worse here. And uh, for the future... Uh, we're going to be have, having to talk about uh, tempering the xenophobic propaganda that's already in uh, play. Now, the last uh, possibility, but, uh, but uh, at least the, the issue of rehabilitating the country will be on the, the table. Now the question is, what happens if there is, as Charles said, some kind of stalemate and... With that stalemate, the possibility of the war spilling over into Europe. I think there it's much more difficult. There, will, uh, the issue of refugees is going to take primacy. We're going to have to talk about creating uh, humanitarian corridors. And we're going to have to uh, seriously uh, work against the possibility of uh, extending the uh, battle uh, by chemical and nuclear weapons. Stephen, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm listening to what everybody's saying. And, and I think uh, we're going beyond the edges, well beyond the edges of what we typically hear in, at least, well, from my perspective, I'm here in the United States. And the newscasts you get, no matter where uh, you're getting them from, don't ever get into the idea of, a, uh, of, a, of an improved internal uh, government, uh, a more interactive government within Ukraine. Uh, there are a whole bunch of areas you guys are touching that just don't get looked at. But I'm, I'm intrigued by the notion of this scenario of the spillover effect and, and where that's going. Mm -hmm. And it's just as likely as just about any other. I think anyone who came to this show looking for the answer no, there is no the answer. What there, what there is, wisely, I would hope at this point, is the ability to see the scope of possibility. 
And uh, I, I think that's, I, I'd like to pick up that idea of the spillover once again, but usually at this point in our forums and in, in our regular commentary shows, we kind of settle down and sort of take in and think about everything that we've listened, begin considering it. And the best way to do that, we've found, uh, is to listen to a little jazz. And we're back. Our panelists today uh, include Dr. Charles Webble, who uh, many of you know. In fact, if you've been listening to these, you all know. John Cugini is with us also. Two of our regular panelists. We have as a guest panelist today, Professor Stephen Bronner. And uh, we were, as we went to break, uh, we were talking about a, Stephen was talking about a one of the possible outcome scenarios here, and that's really what the show is about today, talking about the scope of possible outcomes from the entire Russian invasion process. Stephen, you were talking about a spillover effect. Could you, could you elaborate about that a bit more and, and just what that means to everybody involved, not just Western Europe, but to NATO, to the United States? 
How does everybody work with this spillover? What is it and what does everybody do as a result of it? Well, in a certain way, I think we've seen some responses already, uh, which is, uh, for example, Sweden and Finland making statements that they would join NATO. Finland has been a, a thorn in the Soviet side since uh, 1917, actually. Uh, that would be one possibility. Mm, yeah. I can tell you uh, uh, that um, a number of Latvians who are also working uh, with my organization and um, who are on the, uh, on the board of uh, the national platform are seeking desperately to move and looking for, uh, looking for jobs. And here, I, I don't want to say this is appeasement because that's a term that's uh, loaded and um, really loaded. I'm sure Charles, uh, who I know, and maybe Joe also, uh, would agree with me. But there would be the temptation, put it to you this way, for traditional Russian goals of uh, warm water ports, uh, buffers to the west, to move into the Baltic. I think that's exactly right. I don't know if it'll go to Czechoslovakia, but those are real likelihoods. And uh, from a political perspective, you have to, uh, you may hope for the best, but you always have to prepare for the worst. You think it's a likelihood that Russia would move on Latvia after this? Uh, very good possibility. Really? Okay. It, it depends on how, from their point of view, the campaign proceeds in their favor from here on out. Yeah. If they can, for example, right. expand their influence into Western Ukraine and take Lviv, for example, right. without suffering tremendous losses, I think Putin will feel the extreme temptation to see how much he can get. Now, that might start with Moldova. If I were in Putin's shoes and I've met the guy and talked to him, and I have sort of an inkling how he may or may not think, he's not a grand strategician. He's a grand tactician. And his tactics will reform and modify and adjust to his perception of gains yeah. and losses. Yeah. Yeah. So if he makes gains in central and western Ukraine without, from his point of view, unacceptable losses. He'll push his luck yeah. and see how far he can get. Okay. And yeah, that, how far he can get, I think, extends initially to beyond the Transnistra Russian-speaking right. enclave in Moldova, because that's the easiest thing yeah. to get. And if he feels he's gotten that without sufficient pushback, then the big question is, will he then proceed further into the Baltic states? Yeah. And, me, then, the, and then the nightmare scenarios begin. Yeah. Then the nightmare scenarios of how NATO responds to that. Right. Must uh, NATO respond now? I mean, can, can there be a way of preempting the nightmare scenario? I throw that out to everybody. Yeah, let me, uh, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and say I'm a little more optimistic on that front. I'll, I'll make a point I made last time is that in, in terms of conventional strength, throw out a few numbers, the population of Russia is 145 million. It's not such a big country. I mean, it's big in land. They don't have such a big population. The population of the United States is over 300 million. And the other NATO countries, it's another three or 400 million. I mean, NATO countries just in population are four or five times Russia. Our economies are probably, God knows, 20 times Russia. In a conventional war, there's no contest. And furthermore, Biden Which is exactly what Putin would acknowledge and therefore yeah. push the envelope with unconventional weapons. Well, so it's well, not maybe, just a threat I, he's making. Well, but, Nate, but Biden, and Biden has also said, and I think it was wise to do this, by the way, I mean, a rare moment of praise for Biden, is Biden said, not one inch of NATO territory. That does a couple of things. I mean, it warns Putin, not one inch of NATO territory. It also puts wide on his What does NATO do? 
oh, well, we, we have tanks and planes and armies. Saying it is what we do. I mean, Biden is Back also telling me weapons. Let me finish my point. It's not only warning Putin, but it's putting, when you put it out in public, Biden is committing himself. Biden is saying to Putin, you know that I am now on the spot, that I have to defend the statement I've, I've made. I can't back off and say, oh, well, Latvia, go ahead, have have a good time. And I think that's actually the right way to do it, to draw uh, a, very, a very clear line and commit yourself in advance. In a conventional war, I don't think there's really any, I mean, if, if Russia can't, Defeat Ukraine? How are they going to defeat Ukraine and Poland and Latvia and all, all the rest of it? So does he move? Does he move to the tactical nuclear weapons? I mean, that, that's where that that comes in, and you know, then, that's a, a bold move. Question: I, I think you'd be crazy to take on NATO in a conventional war. Go ahead, Stephen. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Stephen. The que- uh, I, I think it's a different question. Uh, I think Joe's right in in terms of saying that there'll be a defense, but I. Uh, I think the defense and even the red line would lead to the same thing we have now, only extended to these uh, these nations. The issue would be, would Biden be willing to send troops? Would yeah. NATO be willing to send troops? I don't think they would. So, so Latvia, I mean, Latvia is part of NATO, right? I mean, yeah, they, but they, I don't think they would send troops. I think that would be political suicide. Uh, uh, I, I both, think it would. Uh, both <laughs> would it be yeah, a tactical? When you say not one inch, you know you're you're kind of on the hook. If I may, if I may, moderator's privilege over here. Sure. Sending in troops would that be a tactically wise thing, and could that prevent the crazy, the otherwise crazy man strategy we all seem to be suggesting that Putin is capable of? If the U.S. and NATO were to send in ground troops, or does that just either forestall it or encourage it? What does sending in troops actually do? It escalates it to a point of such radical uncertainty that all bets would be off, which is why I agree with Steve that Biden is bluffing. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are elections coming up. Yeah. I just don't believe in this sacrifice theory uh, that we're willing to do anything to help our uh, Ukrainian brothers. I think Charles is exactly right. The unpredictability would be uh, catastrophic, and the nutso level of this whole thing would uh, just escalate radically. And I, I and I th- I agree with Joe. I think basically uh, Biden's done a uh, a very good job. Uh, on this, uh, the strategy uh, seems more or less acceptable to most people because the sacrifice isn't direct, except in gas prices. And uh, I think you want to maintain that. Aside from all other issues, that uh, it may go kaboom for the entire planet. But in the uh, end, yeah, I mean, that means yeah. that, that, that Putin is holding one more card than NATO and the U.S. is holding. Yeah. And that, that's it. We're, we're playing with one, we're one card down. His deck oh, has Deterrence one. in this case is working to protect Russia so far. Just like right. deterrence so far is working to protect North Korea so far. Mm-hmm. Meaning yeah. nuclear deterrence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, uh, to even think about the idea of, of nuclear weapons. Also, I don't think that the United States could go in alone with troops. It would have to be some kind of international NATO routine. Yeah. I, it's, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I can't see Europe doing that. Well, well just... Uh, I mean, any just, of the just nations. To, just to be clear, I, I, I hope I wasn't clear... Under what I was saying, Ukraine and I think Moldova are not part of NATO. We of don't course, have to be the even for the Baltic. And so, and so we've decided we're going to ship you weapons, but we're not going to put our guys out there. And I think that that is kind of the right level of response. Yeah, NATO, a NATO country is just that's different. I mean, that's a different. We have a treaty obligation. We said eight hundred times. Every president said it. Not one inch of NATO. I. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the you know Biden would shrug and say, "Okay, never mind. Take Latvia. Who cares?" 
I'd be really surprised if that would happen. I, I think American, I, I just can't imagine the American government not fulfilling those those obligations, and not just and not just America, or NATO countries, Germany and Poland, are all all for one and one for all. That's what NATO is. It's collective security. Now, if Putin calls our bluff and we say, eh, never mind, wow. I mean, I hope that doesn't. I don't think that would happen, and I don't think Putin would take that chance. I think he'd be. I think he'd be an idiot to take the chance. I mean, if this is like you know. Hitler deciding to invade Russia because I haven't had any victories lately. Like, well, you know, you better think twice because he's taking on a, a much larger conventional force. Perhaps but we shall perhaps see. Hitler, perhaps it's Hitler in the Sudetenland. Though. It let me let Russia. me let me put this. I want I want to clarify something that I think I'm hearing here, and that is that if the Article Five NATO trigger yeah. were to occur. Namely, that's, uh, that, that uh, uh, there was an invasion or there was harm being brought to a member nation. I right. think I'm hearing you guys saying that you don't think the United States would respond as we have said we would, i.e. we will protect every inch of NATO territory by whatever means, and those means would include troops. You're saying that we will not do that? If that well, would happen, I'm am I hearing that? Am I hearing that I'm correctly? I'm saying we would. Just, just as you would. I'm saying we shouldn't and probably won't. I, I, uh, I would agree with that, and stronger on the wouldn't. Very interesting. Uh, this is not, uh, I, I, I guarantee our listeners and I guarantee anyone else that is being given a copy of this show by a listener, this is not something you're hearing anyplace else. Uh, this is looking a little further down the road than most have so far. Keep this going. So you guys, John, you're not agreeing with that. You feel the United, you agree that you feel the United States would fully respond to an Article 5 trigger Yes. Charles yes. And, 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 and Stephen, you feel it would not. Yes, I, I say would would and should, by the way. And they're, they're saying wouldn't and should. How about, so we're, Charles we're and Stephen, how about, how about doesn't but should? Does that make sense? Or is it not a moral to. obligation yes, not that, to? I don't think it should either. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, there's, there's just so, uh, so much you can do. Even now, were the uh, were that military intervention successful? How far do you want to go? Do you want to go uh, into um, uh, well? You you would have the Baltics. You would have Moldova. You would have uh, uh, Ukraine. Uh, uh, or sorry, the, uh, a certain part of Ukraine. You want to go into the Russian-controlled part of Ukraine, and then do you want to, uh, if uh, uh, Putin ups the ante? I mean, the guy's in uh, a KGB man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think Charles has a, has a point with this. Uh, you want to go to uh, Russia itself, or you want to draw the line there? Hmm. Once you start, yeah. in other words, Max Weber had a great line, uh, the great sociologist. He said, uh, ideology isn't like a taxi cab, which you can stop at the corner and say, I want to get off. Once this starts, uh, one has to be pe prepared for it taking on its own dynamic. Yeah. I, I think that's a fair question of how aggressive they do. I mean, the minimal, in, in my opinion, the minimal response, Russia invades Latvia. Okay, we're, we're picking on Latvia. The minimal response is kick Russia out of Latvia. That's how do you the do that? Thing. Latvia, Latvia's NATO territory. We kick Russia out of Latvia. We don't invade. We're not going to march to Moscow. Nobody wants to take over Petersburg. At most, maybe we bomb some supply depots that are on the Russian side. Hey, too bad. You know, you got an oil depot there. Sorry, it's on Russian territory. You invaded. Whether NATO would use that as a pretext, excuse, or whatever to then assist in non-NATO countries, such as Ukraine, militarily, that, that I don't know. I mean, I think that that to me is kind of an interesting question. Does that sort of open the door? Uh, but but as a minimum, it seems yeah. to me, yeah, NATO te NATO territory is, is sacred. 
And well, then we perhaps go from Finland and Sweden. Well, they're not part of NATO yet. I mean, if they... Um, that, if may they be the cause, that may be the price. Let's try this another way. Yeah. Let's say that Russia goes ahead and does something that would otherwise be an Article 5 trigger. Yeah. We don't respond. The United States doesn't respond. NATO doesn't respond. We act right. in a unified way. Um, Can we I live clear, with this? I'm not saying don't respond. I'm saying don't respond in kind. There are other kinds of responses. Charles, you, Charles you're, answering, you're answering the question before I asked it. What do we do? How do we live with not responding in kind? Is that a tolerable way to exist, or is it simply something that we have no choice but to exist with? Can we exist well with not responding in kind in an Article 5 trigger situation? I open that to everybody. Article 5 doesn't specify how you respond. Exactly. It doesn't say if Putin uses tactical nuclear weapons or chemical biological weapons, you're obligated to use them as well. Not at all. You can use other means. The other means are civilian massive non-resistance, sabotage, non-cooperation, cyber warfare. There are 198, to be precise, tactics you can use short of responding in kind of massive uh, use of weapons. Of Talk about them, please, if you would, Charles. I just mentioned half a dozen. Yeah, well, like how, how would they work? How would they actually work? Can you, is there, are they variable to the situation? And is, are there specific yes. ways that you see it in this twice situation? in Ukraine already, yeah. in the Orange Revolution in 2014, mm -hmm. um, there was a response of Russian paid snipers and mercenaries to the mostly nonviolent crowd. There was some Molotov cocktails thrown, but it's unclear if they were paid, thrown by Ukrainian demonstrators or agent provocateurs. But that created a revolution that unnerved Putin no end and still does. Responded in, not in kind in Georgia, but that didn't work very well for one-third of Georgia, but it worked very well for two-thirds of Georgia. Mm. It responded not in kind in Kyrgyzstan, responded not in kind where I am literally sitting at the moment mm. in 1968 yeah. and 1989 yeah. in the Czech Republic. 1968, the Russians didn't withdraw, but they didn't kill anyone either. 1989, the Russians did withdraw and no one died. I want to go back to the point made by both Steve and John about Afghanistan. I think Russia can take but not hold Ukraine. And I have about a thousand different reasons for thinking that. And those thousand different reasons go to the thousand different cases of occupied countries whose populations during and um, immediately uh, following the occupation by invading forces resulted in massive campaigns of active and passive mixed violent and nonviolent resistance that drove the invaders out, including Afghanistan. The Russian mothers don't, you talk, Steve talked about civil society. The single most powerful civil so social element in Russia are the mothers and the grandmothers. And they are already seeing or not seeing the bodies of their sons and grandsons coming back or not even being disclosed by the Russian military authorities. And they're already protesting. Mm. They were the ones who fueled Gorbachev's campaign to get Russia out of Afghanistan, and they will be the ones who once again will fuel the civil resistance in Russia if and when the, the, the body count becomes too high for Russian mothers to tolerate. So if you want to supply uh, an ideological Trojan horse or fifth element to Russia, empower the babushkas. Now, I say that only as a half joke, but they have mm. tremendous social force in Russian mm -hmm. society to a degree that's unimaginable in Western society. That's just one of 200 examples. Mm. And Russian babushkas are all over the map in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. That's just one example. I think there's something we're leaving out. I, I, I have a little qualifier, uh, Charles, to, to what you said. There was a very interesting thing done in the Times 
whereby uh, the New York Times, where the, um, there was a type of um, landscaping of the resistance. And it's quite true in, uh, in St. Petersburg and Moscow, uh, the resistance was real, which figures uh, these are uh, the most uh, liberal, the cities, urban, and so on. The rest of the country, no. Uh, the, uh, it's worth looking at that map. I mean, we're talking about 30 people at a demonstration, 50 people. Now, that may change with the body count. That's true. But I want to raise something else that we haven't talked about and that I think is important. We talk about NATO all the time, right, and the solidarity of NATO. Uh, what about something interesting like the following? A new axis power, uh, a new axis alliance. Russia, China, Iran, maybe with the support of India. That is a pretty um, formidable enemy, and that's not out of the question. That's not, I'll give you an example. Uh, the sheer investment issue, right? In uh, Sudan, at the turn of the century, uh, there was about a billion dollars invested by China. Now there's about $200 billion invested by China, plus the, uh, the, uh, the interesting thing, and this could go with Russia also, uh, the Merwan Dam. Now, I was in, I was in Sudan and, uh, and Darfur, and uh, my delegation, the delegation I was with, went to the, see the Merwan Dam, including my wife. I was sick that day. Uh, she said she never saw anything like it. She said it was the, uh, like the Grand Canyon plus water. Hmm. Uh, all Chinese all Chinese workers, all Chinese uh, administrators, um, something like that in a, in a, in a, a desperate situation, uh, maybe. And then we have something very different than what we have now. And I don't I see China becoming directly involved because its no. economic links are too strong uh, with the West, with South America, and with Europe for them to want to uh, undermine those. Maybe, uh, uh, but it may it may feel uh, for one of the few times that its geopolitical position is radically called into question. I'm not saying this is for sure. Uh, they could be doing the same thing, sending weapons, so on and <clears> so forth. They've done that in the past. And they've also been willing to send troops in the past uh, when the geopolitical uh, situation uh, uh, has um, seemed threatening. Let me, throw, let me ask my, my two professors uh, a question. Um, if you're, you're China, you're CCP, so far, seeing what you've seen with Russia and Ukraine and resistance and NATO and all that, are you more likely or less likely to want to invade Taiwan than you were six months ago? Uh, that is great. I'd be hedging my bets and waiting to see what happens. Oh, okay. If, yeah, too, too if, early if, to tell? Yeah, right. Oh, I also have a beast. Um, but he's uh, he's abandoned me for the garden at the moment. For, for, for those who um, can't see what's just happened, we have a we have a pet situation yes. going on. Phoebe over here has right now. decided to join us. She likes the discussion, and she was crying. So here she is. There she uh, is, um, and she's not dogmatic. I, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, Charles, it was gonna it was gonna come at some point. Oh, I, that's I, I, right. By the way, I want to add one small point to this whole statement about and and you you John talking to your your Chinese and Russian professor, as it were. Uh, yeah. I'm married to an Indian woman, and I can tell you from everything that she's told me, and I've known her and her family for decades. Yeah. The affiliation on a personal level between on the street Indians and the Russians has gone on for a long time. It's deep, it's powerful. And as we speak right now, I know family members that we have in India are loathe, loathe 
to even imagine giving a, a love tap to Putin and Russia over all of this. No one wants to surrender that affiliation. It's deep within okay. the Indian psyche, I imagine. It's shared by the Russians, I don't know. Make no assumptions in about Chinese. how India would go in, if, if push came to shove. Right. I think China is a completely different ballgame than India. China is not dependent on Russia for literally anything mm. except geopolitical right. affiliation. India is deeply dependent on Russia for its arms and, and trade and many True. other things. It's not a parallel situation. Yeah. Yeah. True. yeah, I was somewhat surprised and a little disappointed by that. that I, I did not realize prior to the Ukraine conflict that India had as close a relationship with Russia as, as, as apparently it Run does. Steep. And, and Run one steep. would have one would have hoped that as a fellow democracy, they would have had a little more sympathy for Ukraine, but apparently not. Uh, I, I, a little bit with Israel as well, you would think that they would sort of see the Ukrainian side of things, but uh, I, I guess they feel that strategically they're, they're better off staying on the sidelines. So, you know, so be it. Uh, I, I guess it'll be. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, this has been uh, an ear and, well, I, I guess in the, because we're running with audio solely in this situation, and I not quite an eye-opener, but I would say certainly on a metaphoric level, a hell of an eye-opener, an ear-opener indeed. Uh, we're looking at and listening to and thinking about scenarios that I am not hearing any place else. I, uh, in the, in the, at the risk of self, uh, of self promotion. And in fact, I think, uh, in the hope of self promotion, I would hope that this, uh, this show gets listened to by a lot of people and not just people who are, uh, interested in hearing a good conversation, but hopefully some decision makers. There's a lot of scope in what we're discussing over here. Clearly, we can't predict what's going to happen. Clearly, we can't even strongly infer what the probable endpoint might be. But the best and the most necessary thing for us to do right now is to lay out the broadest possible series of scenarios so that we're not just focused on something that surprises the daylights out of everybody when it doesn't come to be and we don't have reactions in place and plans in place for alternative scenarios. Yes, everybody has the big, uh, the NATO and, and the United States have all of their war plans. I'm sure that's all out there. But, well, it's, it's, it's never quite so simple. And uh, there's nothing about the current situation that suggests that it will be any different. But it requires good, solid thought and some very thoughtful people to put out those good, solid thoughts. I'd like to thank Dr. Charles Webel, John Cugini, and of course our uh, guest uh, panelists today, Professor Stephen Bronner uh, from Rucker University, and uh, uh, for an eye-opener and an ear opener, and I trust that uh, you in the audience uh, listening to this uh, will have your own thoughts and will pursue them uh, without restriction, without, uh, without uh, limitation, because no one really knows where this is going, but we certainly have to consider uh, good, solid reasoning and thought and history and background, and I think we've had an opportunity to do that today. Just like we did at the break, uh, we tend to do the same thing here at the end of our shows. Uh, sit back, let it all digest, and it always, always, always happens best with a little more jazz.
listening to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you for being part of today's show. My special thanks to our panelists, Dr. Charles Webel, John Cugini, and Professor Stephen Bronner for a very enlightening conversation, not just about what's happening, but what we must think about, what comes next. We need more conversations like this. This show was recorded on April 26th, 2022.